Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by the Pinnacle Health Cardiovascular Institute's team of cardiologists, surgeons, nurses, physicians' assistants, and rehabilitation specialists, delivering a broad range of traditional and highly specialized procedures. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Earlier this month, the credit reporting company Equifax divulged a massive data breach that may have exposed the personal information of up to 143 million people. The sensitive personal information included social security numbers and birth dates, something that criminals could use in many ways. Obviously, hackers have attacked websites and files that possess personal information, but the Equifax breach was particularly frustrating because much of the information was handed over by individuals affected or was handed out was not voluntarily handed out over by individuals affected. The company made a less than satisfactory offer of protection to those who are impacted, and many have spent money out of their own pocket to protect themselves. So the question arises, what can be done to protect personal information from hackers? Joining us today is Andrew Hacker, cybersecurity expert in residence at Harrisburg University of Science and Technology. Mr. Hacker, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. If you have a question or comment, we know this is an issue that many of you may have questions. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, Andrew, the Equifax breach was one of the largest that we've ever experienced, up to 143 million people, as I mentioned. That could be half the U.S. population. What potential dangers are there? Right. So the fact that um, we had the largest breach of its kind with 143 million social security numbers um, together with, you know, first name, last name, and also uh, date of birth. I mean, having all of those pieces of information together, um, you know, gives criminals, you know, a lot of opportunity to do a lot of bad things with that. So, you know, being able to open lines of credit, um, you know, get a, a car loan, all kinds of, uh, of different types of, of things that affect your credit since, you know, I mean, these are the, the, the credit monitor folks, you know, they had all that information. So, you know, um, it, you know, it really can be very damaging. You know, and I think there are some things there, too, that uh, many people haven't thought of. I mean, they, they do think of, of the basics uh, with Social Security numbers and with birth dates, uh, loans, that kind of thing, maybe right. trying to reach out for a mortgage or to make purchases. But, uh, you know, one of the things I think a lot of people probably didn't uh, think about right off the bat is even your income taxes could be affected, uh, that there are a number of different areas where there could be an impact. Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, I could could envision, you know, a situation where, you know, you submit your tax returns for a particular year, um, and it it could be even possible that criminals could get access to, you know, your refund check if they they have enough information. I mean, granted, you know, you probably have a PIN or something like that that goes along with it, but certainly the more information that they have about you, um, you, you know, the more damage they can do. And certainly, I mean, you know, these criminals are very resourceful, so they can kind of start with you know, a smaller amount of information and they can, you know, go and sort of, you know, not only fish for more phishing, meaning, you know, I could send a particular person an email and sort of ask them questions where they might give me more information, right? Um, it is possible they could take, uh, you know, an email and make it seem like it came from the, the IRS, you know, saying there was some, you know, problem with your refund check, you know, we need your PIN to, you know, to, to help you out with this. And then, hey, you're, now you're giving them the, your PIN and they can actually get a check from you, so... Mm. There's so much, so much to think about. And obviously, one of the reasons that uh, we're, we're going to talk about most often during this program is the protection. But I, I do want to get into some of the questions that a lot of people have had about Equifax. Typically, what does a company that possesses a significant amount of information do to protect itself? Yeah, well, I mean, and that is the big issue, too, is um, so typically this information would sit on a big database. And just to give you sort of an overview of, you know, how these companies work with their their information technology systems, 
<clears throat> and then they would have a, a website that would be, you know, facing the internet, um, where you know a customer would go in to log in. They would check, you know, maybe their credit score or check their information. So that's sort of a, <clears throat> you know, the doorway in is that that web server that that sits in front. And that web server has access to that database, right? So there's a, there's a bunch of different ways that those companies, you know, need to, and in a lot of cases they're required to, you know, perform certain actions to keep those systems safe, right? So the first line of defense, if we think of, you know, the part that faces the Internet, is to make sure that, that, that the software that runs on that computer is constantly updated with, they're called security patches. And these security patches basically fix new problems, um, security problems, they're called vulnerabilities, um, by updating that code and, you know, plugging up the holes. And in, in fact, that's what happened in this case was that there was a new vulnerability that came out for a particular piece of software <clears throat> that Equifax was using, and they did not patch it within, you know, any reasonable amount of time. <clears throat> I, I believe it was three months, but, you know, those are the kinds of things where, you know, every week, every two weeks, you know, every month latest, the company would be updating that. <clears throat> and the second piece, is actually protecting the, the, the data itself. So if you know, that data sits in a database um, and it just sits there without any protection, then you know, all it takes is someone to be able to get into that database server, they can pretty much grab everything. So um, you know, especially in healthcare, you know, one of the things that's required um, by law is actually you know, encrypting that data specifically. Um, so yeah, I, I don't believe that was the case um, with Equifax, but I mean, you know, these are just some examples of of things with you know um, information technology um, programs within organizations, they have to have a cybersecurity component and they have to be vigilant and up to date on on these types of things all the time. Because you know the cybersecurity folks have to be right every day, and all it takes is you know one bad guy, and there are lots of them to to be right once and and can cause a you know a big breach like this. So, who identifies those vulnerabilities? <clears throat> Um, well, it, believe it or not, in a lot of cases, uh, some of them are automatic. You know, I mean, kind of almost just like with your, your PC, you can set automatic updates to do this. Now, when we're talking about a big, you know, big corporation, you know, they want to review them, you know, make sure that they don't really, you know, necessarily break any of the software. Um, but there, there are all kinds of lists that exist, and, you know, certainly the, the, the vendors that produce that software, publish lists about the vulnerabilities that they know about um, on a regular basis. So the, the information is certainly available. There obviously are investigations going on and as to what what happened here, but uh, any idea whether this could be a single hacker or too big? Would it have to be a group of hackers? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a very interesting question. Um, yeah, I mean, you would think, you know, going after larger organizations where the where the stakes are certainly bigger, um, you know, you would think that it, most likely this is, you know, some larger organization with, you know, some organized goals that they have. I mean, obviously there's there's financial goals, uh, you know, and, and this is not necessarily the case with Equifax, but just to kind of, you know, explore the different possibilities. I mean, certain, you know, corporations that have, uh, a lot of intellectual property. I mean, you could, you know, you can think designs for an automobile or something like that. You know, maybe a competitor, you know, could fund somebody to break in. You know, I mean, that's um, there's all kinds of cases. Uh, but it certainly could be, um, you know, either a smaller group of, of people that are not funded by, you, you know, large amounts of money. Or, I mean, it could be, you know, one hacker who, you know, discovered something and and you know decided to to try to, you know, get more out of it. Because, um, you know, you can sell social security numbers. I mean, um, and any kind of financial records, I, I think, you know, it's not a whole lot of money, 50 cents a dollar. Um, but certainly, you know, health, in the healthcare industry, you know, those records are, are very valuable because of the fact that, you know, you can't really easily change any of that information. I mean, you can't change your social security number. You can certainly change a credit card number. You can change a bank account number. Um, but, you know, you can't change your health information. You can't change your DNA. So, um, you know, those those records become more valuable. Well, you know, you say that, uh, you know, Social Security numbers can be sold. You anticipated one of my next questions is, what would a hacker do with this information? Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, if someone were to go, there are sites uh, on the, you know, the quote unquote dark web where, you know, there are whole big markets for this this kind of information, and even to the point where you you know you can purchase software like you would purchase any other software that would help um, you know the criminals break into you know certain types of applications. Uh, but once you know once that information is obtained, you know having that you know allows you access to a lot of 
you know, um, different companies that use social security number to verify a person. So, you know, whether they're, you know, federal government records or, you know, credit records or financial records, um, you know, a lot of cases, even though, you know, over time, I think that's getting phased out. I mean, it used to be your, your healthcare card had your social security number on it. That's, that was just the, that was how they indexed or referenced, you know, you. Um, but I think there's, you know, starting to move to, you know, making that more secure by making, you know, that reference to you be, you know, not something uh, easily obtainable. Um, but yeah, I mean, once they have that, they can, you know, they can fill out credit applications and it really depends on how much ver- verification and validation that <clears throat> financial organization would do. I mean, in some cases, they just take the application. Um, you know, I think they're getting a little more sophisticated where they're, you know, they're doing more things. But, you know, even consider the fact that, you know, this is, you know, a credit verification company. So, you know, if you've got social security number and even some other pieces of information, I mean, conceivably, you know, you might be able to fool um, the credit uh, reporting services into, you know, um, allowing something that you wouldn't. See, this is, I think, what's very, very frustrating for millions of people out there is that, uh, you know, often we talk about uh, protecting ourselves on our personal devices. But what's frustrating in a case like this is that customers have no control over the information that companies like a, a credit reporting service, a bank, uh, you know, if you buy something online, that the customers, for the most part, don't have a whole lot of control right. over their information, or do they? Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's. I mean, that's a that's a very excellent point. Um, certainly, you know, the companies that that do have all of our personal information, you know, they. Um, you know, they owe it to their customers to, to uh, you know, be good stewards of that information. Um, and you're completely correct. I mean, if, you know, the, you know, once that information sort of leaves your phone or your, your browser and goes on the Internet, you know, it's out of your hands. Um, you know, we call that sort of a person's digital footprint. And, you know, granted, there are so many different companies that might have little pieces of our information. And if you sort of put that all together, it winds up being, you know, really a whole lot of information. So it is very important, you know, A, that the the companies that are responsible for our data, especially the more sensitive types like social security numbers or, you know, medical or health records, you know, they really do need to, you know, protect them, um, you know, even more so than just, you know, potentially, let's say, photos that come from our phone that we upload somewhere. Um, and, you know, legislation, you know, kind of needs to catch up, you know, especially from the privacy standpoint, where, you know, <clears throat> companies are, you know, actually doing things to protect privacy, you know, in addition to even just securing the information, but, you know, doing things that can actually make the data more private. So even if it was stolen, it wouldn't necessarily you know, point back to a particular person. So, And we're going to talk more about uh, what you can do, if anything, here in a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to research that improves health, reduces recovery times, and brings new treatments and therapies to our area before they are available elsewhere. More information is at pinnaclehealth.org. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Our guest during this portion of the program is Andrew Hacker, cybersecurity expert in residence at Harrisburg University of Science and Technology. We're talking about cybersecurity in light of the Equifax security breach that uh, affected up to 143 million, I was about to say Americans, but probably uh, people who are non-Americans as well, 143 people in the United States. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, one 800 729 7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we're at smarttalk. WITF. Again, question or comment about your own situation, what to look for, what you can do to protect yourself, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. And I wanted to follow up, Andrew, uh, on what we were talking about just before the break. This is an email. Uh, it says, considering the multiple breaches of security over the last few years that have di- directly affected me, and he mentions uh, the veteran affairs uh, laptop is stolen, 
Target stores, my auto insurance carrier, and the most disappointing breach with Equifax, the people who are supposed to be protecting our information, what am I to do to protect my most vital information? I'm tired of getting letters saying there was a possible breach and we are doing everything we can to protect your privacy. Frankly, I'm simply tired of it. Right. Yeah, well, uh, certainly, you know, to me, the first step is to, to really control how much of your information is, is given to these other organizations. You know, it's it, it really the, the, the least or the less amount that you can give them, the better. You know, obviously, there's some cases where, you know, they require that information. But, you know, I think if enough people collectively, you know, demand from these organizations to know exactly you know, how their data is being protected. And, you know, I know we kind of click through a lot of these um, terms of use documents, and I mean, really, we should take a look at them, and certainly in the privacy section, and you know, because you know, these companies are supposed to be letting us know how they do protect, um, you know, our privacy and our identities. Um, and you know, if you see something in there that doesn't doesn't look too good, you know, call them up and say, hey, you know, what are you guys doing, and let me know, because um, obviously this is important to me. I mean, the other piece which which I'm happy to see is, you know, even um, you know, we, we talk about our banks and doing a lot of online banking, um, one thing that everybody should be doing if their bank isn't requiring it is to activate two-factor authentication. And so what this does is, in addition to just your username and password, um, that that website, that bank will actually ask for some other um, form of identification. And usually this is done, you know, not from your computer. You can get a PIN or something sent to your phone, right? So it's you know, it's two separate pieces of information that are used to, to verify that it's you, um, which kind of prevents, you know, somebody logging in from, you know, some foreign country and <clears throat> just using a username and password because they would actually have to have your phone, which that bank would have on record um, to, to be able to validate it's you. So that's that's a big one. Well, okay. Let me just take a step back. Um, and let me go back to your first one about using it less. I mean, that's almost impossible, Andrew. I mean, today, almost everything is online. We know that uh, more and more people are buying products that retail sales. There are more and more are occurring online. Now, you may not be giving your birth date or your Social Security number, but you are giving credit card numbers and and other information that, you know, a a hacker can use, as you said earlier, to go out and and fish for some other information. So that almost sounds impossible. I guess... what you're saying, I'm just wondering, is there a way to know when you go to a website or you're dealing with a bank or you're dealing with uh, somewhere where you're applying for a car loan or something like that, that that they they have security play things in office, those pa- in, in uh, I should say uh, that they have those things in effect that, uh, right. you know, so that they are using the latest security patches. Any way to know? Yeah, yeah, it's it's difficult. I mean, there there you know there are several standards, um, you know, sort of seals, and you know, there's several companies that will you know actually validate that a company is doing a lot of those things. But you know, there's no there's really nothing across the board, and you know you know I don't think there's anything that's used with enough regularity um, and enough you know being commonplace enough to really be able to rely on that. You know, certain sites might have it. Certain you know banks have have this validation, but it's not across the board. Uh, it's certainly not enforced, um, you know, by any, any laws uh, that at this point, um, but, you know, there are some moves to, you know, to go that route to get, you know, the European Union has, um, you know, a whole, whole collective group of laws that protects consumer privacy. Um, you know, we don't have that in the United States yet. Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, demanding to know what the company's um, cybersecurity policies and processes are is, you know, it's definitely a great start. Um, I will say that there are some other technologies that, you know, we're all, we're looking here at Harrisburg University and also, you know, some other companies are starting to get to the point where, you know, they will be securing individual pieces of data, you know, so that even when, you know, you take your piece of data and you give it to, you know, some external company, it's already got certain protections um, built into it, right? So this is sort of, you know, your own personal, you know, data collection, cybersecurity. Uh, you know, those technologies are sort of, they're just being built now, and, you know, I wouldn't say they'd be available for, 
you know, another year or two or three. But, you know, collectively, you know, we, we can get to that place where, you know, you could be more confident that the data that you're putting out to the Internet is, is better protected than it is today. You know, and, and something else, you would think that a company like Equifax that has so much information, uh, personal information of so many people, that they would be on top of this right from the very beginning. And as sure. you said, uh, apparently three months went by before they used this, uh, a patch. I mean, what right. were they thinking? I mean, you can't answer that, but th- that seems very irresponsible. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I mean, even just from the liability standpoint, from that company's perspective, I mean, y- you know, it's almost it, sh- it has to be built into you know the financial plans of the companies. You know, I mean, most of these large companies. I mean, even the, the Target breach. I mean, that affected their financial status severely. So, you know, it's and it's. You know, cybersecurity. You know, over the last three to five years, has has really, you know, gotten onto the forefront of everybody's focus. It hadn't been. You know, five years ago, you know, cybersecurity um, departments had to, you know, beg for for funding. Right. So, you know, a lot of security professionals and and security executives have pushed. Hey, and, you know, they've pushed and said, hey, you know, we need this funding to protect this organization because. You know the potential, you know, negative impact is so big. You know, if you think of, um, you know, 100 million or 150 million, you know, uh, records of people stolen, <clears throat> with each one being, you know, costing that company five or or ten dollars, and certainly, you know, to do the um, uh, the credit monitoring for one year, that costs a lot of money. So I mean, you're looking at millions of dollars. <clears throat> and if it's a public company, you know, affecting that company's stock price, uh, that that's happened. Target suffered huge losses uh, after their breach. So, um, you know, these companies, you know, even if they don't owe it to their consumers because they don't think they need to, you know, they kind of, they own it, to, you know, to the, the health, the financial health of that company, for sure. You know, there's going to be lawsuits uh, if they're not already on, on this Equifax. Let's go to I, I, Brendan, I Brendan in Gettysburg. Brendan, you're on the air. Hello. Uh, yeah, I'd like to point out that uh, as soon as we heard about the, the Equifax breach. I work for a large healthcare organization. I'm an actual security professional for, for them. Uh, as soon as we found out about it, we started seeing um, uh, alerts across the board saying, hey, the website these people are going to, because people see all the news, they get to the webpage to check if they're impacted. Uh, as soon as they put it out, we saw that the, the webpage itself was extremely vulnerable. It was a default WordPress website. The, the um, certificate was weak. Uh, in terms of its cyber coding um, and, and encryption levels, which I, which we found in a sad way fascinating, but it, you know, just it, right. it's like as if they didn't even hear their their tone deaf, um, right? So. Yes. It's crazy. It just sounds yeah. like they did not respond well at all in every single instance. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, def- it definitely shows that they didn't have a comprehensive security policy in place. Well, I mean, that's scary just what Brendan just said, that, uh, you know, they gave you a website to go to to check to see if you were someone who could be impacted by this, that uh, your information was vulnerable, and and the website wasn't secure. Right. <laughs> Unbelievable. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's a great point, and you know, I, I mean, I could say that probably you know they were struggling to you know get something put out there, but it just shows. I mean, it's you know, a big thing with cybersecurity is you know having these policies and and these procedures in place ahead of time because it's it's really hard to react when when something like a you know large breach happens. I mean, they're struggling to you know just keep it from growing larger, responding to you know press inquiries, all kinds of things. Um, but yeah, I mean, if they, you know, if they'd really been prepared, you know, they would have had um, secure websites to put up for this. Let's go so, to great, tra- great point. Trey in Lebanon. Trey, you're on the air. Hi. Good morning. Thanks for taking the call. Yes, you're welcome. My question, my question is regarding the um, security of a lot of these uh, organizations that require background checks. For example, the Department of Education, the U.S. Olympic C- Committee uh, for coaches. Uh, they all require an online scanning of your fingerprint and then social security number submitted. And some of these organizations use, or use businesses which are, in a sense, credit check places. And how do we know those are secured? Uh, how do we know that right. it's up to the CDE has to secure Thank you for your call. I don't know. Do you, you want to answer that, Andrew? It, yeah, yeah. It was the... the uh, line was breaking up a little bit there, but I think I got most of it. And certainly, yeah, I mean, if we're if we're talking about you know increased 
you know, if it's a background check or something where they're requiring, a, you know, even more information, I mean, fingerprints and, and so-called biometrics, you know, those are, again, those are things that obviously you, it's very difficult for you to change. And, you know, with an FBI background check or, you know, Pennsylvania has a patch check, um, you know, you are giving you know, a lot more information, um, you know, to these entities that are doing the validations. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, certainly within the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, you know, they have a very comprehensive cybersecurity program, you know, at the, at the governor's office of, of administration. Um, and, you know, they, they ensure that, you know, a lot of these systems are, you know, held to the highest standards for cybersecurity. So, again, it's, you know, it's almost a case-by-case basis because, um, even as we just saw um, with Equifax and the previous caller pointed out, you know, even though, you know, they throw up some other new site or some organization, you know, puts up another site that isn't, um, you know, isn't secured well, um, it, it could be a problem. And once it's, again, it's once that information's out there, um, it's, it's available. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a great point. You know, I, I just I kind of smiled here when you used that terminology, threw up another site. That doesn't sound, make me sound real <laughs> secure, you know? Yeah. Let's go to Larry in, Lebanon, in Lancaster. Larry, you're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Yes, um, you're welcome. My question, my comment, and maybe question is, did the Equifax leak include phone numbers? Because if it did then using a text and your phone as the second uh, method of authenticating yourself could be open to spoofing by um, a third party, accessing credit card and um, bank records. Hmm. I would imagine, okay, you tell me, Andrew, uh, if, if all this information is made available, I assume that phone numbers were too. Right. Yeah. If they had access to the database, which it sounds like they did, in order for them to, you know, pull 143 million records, I mean, chances are, and I don't, I don't know for a fact, chances are that you know there were phone numbers and cell phone numbers. So I mean, that's a, it's an, a, that's a very great point that, you know, they they have access to our social security number, but now they also have uh, our phone numbers. So you know, even as I mentioned before, two-factor authentication to get into your, to your bank, if they had that. Uh, your phone number, they could, you know, it's a little bit difficult to get in to that level, but yeah, sure, they can, they could spoof to your, you know, they could send you texts that would, you know, spoof um, and try to get additional information for you. So yeah, again, it's, it goes back to the more information that the criminals have, the the more they can do with it and the more potential damage they can, they can create. Steve is in Harrisburg. Steve, you're on the air. Hello, Steve. Okay, I guess Steve is no longer there. Uh, CB and Redding wanted to mention that uh, consumer protection products protect financial information, but not medical information. So that's something to be aware of as well. We have a couple emails here. Uh, Tanya asks, how do you know if your data has been breached? Is Equifax required to notify you? Right, yeah. um, So with healthcare. Um, at the federal level, there is what's called HIPAA, H-I-P-A-A, Health Insurance Portability and Accountable, Accountability Act of 1996, um, which provides um, requirements for a lot of safeguards for, for health information. As far as knowing um, when your data has been stolen, there are, you know, almost every state, I think with few exceptions, does have a, a breach notification act. Pennsylvania certainly has one that if any company that has customers within or clients within uh, Pennsylvania discovers a breach, they're required to notify um, you, you know, those individuals within a certain time period and also to provide credit monitoring services for a year. So, yeah, I mean, Pennsylvania's got a, a very good uh, breach notification act. Um, but, you know, in a lot of cases, um, you know, in some cases, either companies don't figure out that they've been breached for a very long time or, you know, even in some cases, companies will try to not tell anybody. Right, so you know, obviously they're they're liable to state government if they you know try to cover it up. Um, so you know, I would say in most cases you should get notified, um, but don't count on that always happening. 
Well, and, and, you know, getting back to what we were talking about earlier, that Equifax did set up a website that you can check to see if you are one of the people whose uh, information was exposed. Uh, you know, from what we've heard, that doesn't sound like it's, it's the best website, but still, it may be a place to go to find out. Robert in Chambersburg asked, considering the data breach issue, wouldn't it make sense that any company issuing new credit, or for that matter, Equifax or someone else, dig deeper to ensure the credit request is not a result of breached information. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I agree 100%. And, you know, I remember back in the days, I, I think I still shred the credit card offers that come to my house because I, I remember seeing stories where, you know, you could just rip it up and throw it in the garbage and someone could go in your garbage and tape it back together and get a credit card. And, you know, to me, you know, to think about that happening today you know, would sound, you know, kind of ridiculous that, you know, there wouldn't be, you know, additional verification. So I agree very much so that, um, you know, anything that these organizations can do to ensure that they're getting, you know, the right level of, of validation is very important. Uh, I agree. Now we have Steve, uh, who is the financial planner. Steve, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Hi. A uh, couple, couple things I want to just point out. Um, I have a lot of people calling me about uh, are my accounts at risk? Are they have my information? Financial investments, bank accounts, in, uh, you know, 401ks, things like that, are not on the credit report. It's only debt files and things like that. So mm-hmm. it's not directly going to allow them to tomorrow go drain your 401k. Uh, they do, may have the information, and they would have to go through the process of you know, gaining access and, and things like that. But you have to you know, reduce some of the hysteria about it. The, the second thing is what you guys haven't talked about is the ways you can protect yourself, The some of the things that you want to use. While I right. wouldn't really recommend using Equifax's credit monitoring service because they're the guys that let the door open, <laughs> there are a lot of other companies like LifeLock and other companies like that that can actually protect you or at least assist in protection from these hackers getting and using your information or selling your information to somebody that's going to use it and steal your, uh, steal your accounts. Yeah, there are other ways. And if you look, <laughs> it's ironic that we're talking about looking online to, uh, to find some of them. But, yeah, there are ways to do that. Hey, Steve, thank you very much for, for the information. Uh, we're almost out of time, Andrew. And, of course, I can't get away without mentioning your last name. You know, you appeared <laughs> on the program. It's almost destiny that uh, you'd be working in this field, unless you changed right. your name, which I don't think you did. Uh, anyway, no. <laughs> anyway, bottom line, what would you advise people who want to protect themselves, want to check to make sure that their data wasn't breached, what kind of overall summary could you give them? Right. Yeah, yeah I think it's uh, the simplest thing is to just really, you know, treat your personal information, you know, like gold and really and guard it just like you would anything else. I mean, you lock the front door of your house and you don't want somebody coming in and stealing your TV. You treat your data the same way and, and realize that, you know, once it goes out there, it's very difficult to control, you know, where it is and who has access to it. Um, and also, you, you know, collectively, consumers should be demanding from these corporations, um, you know, that they implement these, um, these cybersecurity standards and keep these sites safe. Andrew Hacker is the cybersecurity expert in residence at Harrisburg University of Science and Technology. Andrew, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. In 1927, the Germans set to sea the Cap Orcana, a luxury liner to rival the Titanic. Once Hitler came to power, the ship was actually used as a stand-in for the Titanic in a feature film full of Nazi propaganda. During World War II, the Cap Orcana served as a transport, a troop barracks, and a floating concentration camp for Jewish victims of the Holocaust. The demise of the ship is even more tragic and it is little known. Arthur Robert P. Watson tells the tale of the doomed Capricana in his new book, The Nazi Titanic. Watson joins us on Smart Talk to tell the story of the doomed cruise ship. Dr. Watson, thank you very much for being with us today. 
It's my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. And I should mention that Robert Watson is the featured speaker at the Hitsukamuna Congregation on October 8th at 4 p.m. That's in Harrisburg, October 8th, 4 p.m. Dr. Watson was scheduled to be at Hitsukamuna last month. Well, I guess it's still September, isn't it? Earlier this month, but Hurricane Irma interrupted that, and he wasn't able to get out of Florida. So my first question is, how did you make out uh, as far as the hurricane went? Well, we made it to the, the state uh, from the Keys all the way up through to Jacksonville. It was hit really hard, but uh, uh, we will recover. One thing's for sure, Florida is no stranger to hurricanes, so we've been there before, and, and we'll get through this one. But personally, on a personal basis, yeah, everything was okay? Thank you for asking. Yeah, we made it through. Actually, we were lucky. Uh uh, the city where I live was spared a lot of the damage, uh, just minor damage compared to the rest of the state. So we came through relatively good. All right. So let's talk about the book, The Nazi Titanic. Uh, what prompted this book? As you, as I described and as you say in the book, uh, and don't want to give away too much right now, but that this was a little known story in World War II and even before. Yeah, it's an absolutely crazy story. I I've, uh, I always tell my students, I'm a professor in addition to being an author, I always tell my students that there's more we don't know about history than we do know about history by a large margin. Uh, and history still has these crazy stories, these whoppers, these secrets out there that remain hidden. Uh, and this is one of them. Who would think that one of the single bloodiest hours of the entire war and Holocaust, one of the world's worst maritime tragedies, and one of the final tragedies of the entire war and Holocaust, which occurred in the final days of, of the war, uh, would be largely unknown. Uh, what, what, the reason why I pursued it uh, was I was thinking about writing a, a, a different book. I was going to write a book about the last week of World War II and some of the uh, chaos that defined that last week, and yet there were touching stories of love and loss and triumph and tragedy in those final days. And I found a letter from a major in the British military who described this event in the book uh, of this just absolute, uh, you know, the inhumanity of this event and all this tragedy. And I said, wow, I've never heard of that. So I called some leading Holocaust scholars, some leading World War II scholars, and all of them said, we never heard of it either. So I started digging around, and lo and behold, uh, the event was real. And uh, the reason why people didn't know about it was the Allies, uh, led by the British government, were so shocked by the details of this, and so many people perishing in the final moments of the war, that they ordered that all the documents be collected, sealed, top secret, classified, and they were locked away in uh, London. And they were ordered to be sealed and not opened for 100 years, not until the year 2045. Uh, Fortunately, the documents were opened early, and... um, uh, and we, then we found some additional documents that they had failed to find and, and release, and that allowed me to uh, tell this uh, crazy story. Well, I want to take a step back before we get to that final tragic chapter in the story of the Capricana. And I, I am pronouncing that correctly, am I not? Yes, yes you are. It's named for a cape uh, off Germany's northern coast in the southern Baltic uh, so it was named for that uh, landmark. Now, back in uh, the 1920s, late 1920s, Germany mm-hmm. built this ship, and it was built to uh, rival the Titanic. Uh, Germany wanted this huge luxury liner that they thought would be unsinkable. Uh, once it was built, everyone loved it. It was making uh, regular trips between South America and Europe. Talk about yes. the ship in its original form. Well, you're, you're spot on with that. Yeah, so... World War, the reason why the ship was built was largely a result of World War I. Uh, Germany had a great shipbuilding industry, and the nation really took pride in it. But, of course, with World War I, uh, all German ships, uh, commercial, military, and otherwise, were either sunk or captured by the victors. So, um, in part to restore Germany's prominence as a great shipbuilder, in part to help the economy, but also in part to reinvigorate nas- a sagging national pride, uh, a shipping company, Hamburg, South America, which is still in business, and a big ship builder, Blum & Voss, which is still in business, both operating out of the Hamburg area in northern Germany, they decided to make a replica of the Titanic, the world's greatest ship. 
Their engineers even studied the Titanic to try to improve it and then improve upon what they perceived as design flaws. They hardened, uh, you know, thickened the hull. They uh, put more lifeboats on it, things of that effect. And it was launched. It, when it was launched, it was nicknamed the Floating Palace, the Queen of the South Atlantic, all these you know, over-the-top names because it was such an amazing ship. It looks a lot like, it looked a lot like the Titanic in opulence and design, the interior, you know, the chandeliers, the orchestras, the full-course dinners. The, uh, the only difference was it had three funnels instead of four, which the Titanic had. So it immediately became one of the most celebrated ocean liners afloat, and American celebrities and actors and European monarchs and the who's who from around the world sailed on this ship. So it was quite the ship. Of course, everything changes when Hitler comes to power and then when the Nazis uh, start World War II. All right, well, before even World War II, but when the Nazis do come to power, uh, that the, the film, the British film, about the sinking of the Titanic, A Night to Remember, was one of Hitler's favorites. And, you know, when, once the Nazis came to power, as as the war approached, uh, the Nazis were, were trying to come up with propaganda. And they wanted to use filmmaking as a way to do that. Now, uh, Joseph Goebbels, uh, who was in charge of, of propaganda, right. uh, he, you know, he was making all these films that people didn't want to watch. So they decided they would copy Hollywood, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, the thing is, Joseph Goebbels and Adolf Hitler were, were film nuts. Uh, they, they thought they were connoisseurs of fine film. And uh, I found countless references in both of their writings and their staff's writings that it was not uncommon for the two of them to sit up at night and watch three back-to-back-to-back Hollywood blockbusters. They routinely watched films like King Kong and Gone with the Wind. They even liked uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, the Disney movie. So they would watch these movies over and over and over, and then they would sit for hours and debate the cinematography script and all that. I think I joked at one point that they thought they were Germany's answer to Siskel and Ebert, you know, <laughs> that, that, that they were these connoisseurs. So at one point, um, Hitler tasks Goebbels for using film as uh, a sword of the war for propaganda purposes, and Goebbels made probably hundreds of films. Uh, Judd Seuss, the Jew Seuss, Der Vigor Jude, which is uh, the eternal Jew. Uh, and these films were all ridiculously ham-fisted. They were all these kind of Dracula-like movies where uh, an idyllic German community, and then all of a sudden a Jewish guy moved in and he looks like Dracula and everything goes wrong. So they were so obviously propagandized, so juvenile and ham-fisted. So Hitler tells Goebbels, rather than make these films, I want you to make one like Hollywood. And the film that Goebbels and Hitler's hated, they loathed it, it drove them nuts, was Casablanca. Uh, because it was not just a great film, it was an anti-Nazi propaganda film, but you didn't realize that because it was wrapped up as an action drama romance blockbuster. So Hitler says to Goebbels, I want you to make an action drama romance like a Hollywood film. So they need the great, great larger-than-life topic, a cast of thousands like a Cecil B. DeMille, and they decided to make a movie about the Titanic, Although, instead of just the Titanic, it would be the Nazi version of the Titanic, filled with all the Nazi propaganda, but done in a more subtle Hollywood approach rather than the typical Nazi approach. All right. We've got to talk about this in just a moment. But, you know, one thing about Casablanca that uh, many people probably don't remember, unless you are a student of film, is that was that that film was uh, produced before World War Two. So uh, but the Nazis were in power, obviously, but it was yes. before right. World War Two that was produced. All right. So I, I, I just had to say how fascinating it was to hear the Nazi version of the sinking of the Titanic. Describe the script for that and uh, what it was about. So, yeah, they follow the story, at least in broad notions, uh, you know, accurately, and that the ship sinks at night, the ship is racing across the Atlantic. But what they did is they wanted to fill the film with all this anti-British, anti-American, anti-Western propaganda and then 
pro-Nazi or pro-German propaganda. So they made the all the owners of the ship, the officers of the ship, just these um, heartless capitalists who didn't care about any of their passengers. They they were it was all about money. It was all about money. And um, there's one junior officer who happens to be German, and uh, he happens to his name's Peterson. He happens to have this. Uh, photographic encyclopedic knowledge of icebergs for some strange reason. <laughs> and he's the only one that's telling everyone, slow down, we're going to hit an iceberg, foreshadowing it. And he's running around saying, what about the poor passengers? Uh, we're not behaving uh, properly and professionally. And, of course, as the ship is sinking, this guy goes below decks and is saving little girls with pigtails carrying a little puppy dog. It looks like Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. So um, it, it tugs on the heartstrings. And then at the end, the, the guy, even uh, this German officer, even saves the evil ship owners and capitalists, but he saves them only so that they can stand trial, so that justice can be served. So it's the, it's the, the Nazis, it's the Titanic story, but uh, Nazi propaganda is infused throughout the film. So how did it make out at the box office, and was it a quality film? Well, here's the pickle. Uh, it, it didn't make out so well at the box office after... After over budget, being over budget, constant delays, the, the, Hitler is anxiously awaiting his film. He's getting angrier and angrier and angrier that the film's not out. Goebbels is anxiously awaiting this masterpiece, this epic propaganda work. And they think this is going to help turn the tide of the war. So they're both desperate as the war is turning in 1942 and, and onward. So uh, finally, the film is ready, and Goebbels watches it before he shows it to the Fuhrer. And when Goebbels watches it, he realizes something. All the, uh, the, the Nazi sailors, the, the, the Kriegsmarine, the German Navy, so many sailors had drowned. Every family knew someone who was dead or drowned because of the naval losses, that the film could be perceived as very callous. The other thing Goebbels realized is people are liable to see the fanatical captain of the ship as Hitler. The ship is a proxy for Nazi Germany, and of course the doomed passengers mm. as a stand-in for the people of Germany. So after all that, he orders the film banned and destroyed. However, happily pirated copies make it out to places like Paris and Prague, where uh, it is shown in limited release, and it's uh, very well received from a cinematography perspective and an acting perspective. The film, um, uh, the film still exists. Uh, you can watch it on YouTube uh, with English subtitles, uh, and it is difficult to watch because you know what it's about and with the Nazis. However, it, it, from a technical perspective, it's a remarkable film, and what's really haunting is all the sinking scenes and the scenes of the ship. You can actually see this famous Cap Arcona, this Nazi Titanic ship, who became the star of the film. Mm. What is the name of the film, by the way? It's just called the Titanic. Okay. All right. So I'm going to skip ahead through the war. Uh, once uh, the Capricana was used for the, the film, it took on some other uh, responsibilities. Then it was painted to look like a naval ship. It was uh, housing uh, German troops throughout the war. I want to move ahead now to 1945. And you kind of previewed a little bit, but uh, what the Germans decided to do was to take... Uh, uh, a lot of the people who were being imprisoned in concentration camps and put them on these ships. And, well, first of all, where were they planning to take the, the, the prisoners? Okay, so what, what they were doing at the very end of the war was there were two different plans on what should be done. Hitler wanted to liquidate all evidence of the Holocaust, so kill uh, all the prisoners, destroy the camps, destroy the papers, uh, don't let anyone fall into enemy hands. Uh, but Heinrich Himmler... Um, has a different idea. He thinks that you can use these prisoners, thousands of Holocaust prisoners, as leverage, as a bargaining tool. So he issues this kind of secretive, vague, countermanding decree. When Hitler says liquidate everything, Himmler says he, he can't tell his commandants at the concentration camps, don't kill everyone, because he'll be countermanding Hitler, obviously. So he issues this vague order that says, don't let anyone fall into, into Allied hands, move them all to Hamburg, 
So the, some concentration camps follow Hitler, commandants follow Hitler's orders, other commandants follow Himmler's orders, but they're not sure why. So they send tens of thousands to the, this large concentration camp called Neuengamme in Hamburg, and nobody still seems to know why. Himmler is actually all along planning to use these folks. He wants to uh, use them as leverage to negotiate a separate conditional surrender on the Western Front so that the Nazis can turn and fight the Russians. He also wants to negotiate for his own life. Uh, and think about this, uh, this offer he would have made to uh, the British and the Americans. If I turn over thousands and thousands of Holocaust prisoners, would you spare my life? That's a tough one. So in order to facilitate this exchange and negotiation, he wants to put them on board a ship and then meet either at sea or sail the ship uh, to meet with the uh, Allies. And, of course, the ship that he picks for this is none other than the Nazi Titanic, the Cap Arcona. So that leads to the spring of 1945 and the tragedy that uh, you hinted about before. What happened? Yes, yeah, so uh, they, they go to this concentration camp, and then there's this horrific death march, uh, I think it's 60-some kilometers, uh, north to the coast. And there is the, the Nazi Titanic, this massive ship waiting. Now, the ship was so big that it could not even dock at the port uh, at Neustadt. Um, so they had to anchor the ship three kilometers out at sea, and the Nazis spent days and days with these little shuttles ferrying thousands of prisoners out to the ship and piling them on board the ship. Meanwhile, there's countless thousands at the port, and day by day, countless thousands more come, you know, uh, shuffling, struggling into the, to the port community. So the Nazis have no idea what to do with everything. A lot of them still don't know what the plan is. Meanwhile, Hitler commits suicide in the bunker on April 30th. Uh, Joseph Goebbels commits suicide in the bunker. Heinrich Himmler's on the run and gets caught. Hermann Goering is on the run and gets caught. So the entire Nazi command is either dead, committing suicide, or on the run. So no one knows what to do, and the Nazi commanders at the port then come up with a devilish plan. Why don't we just force everyone on board the ship and then blow the ship up, scuttle it at the final moment as we're forced to sign a surrender? Uh, meanwhile, the prisoners have no idea what's going on. They're guessing, are they going to be freed? A uh, Swedish count and head of the Red Cross by the name of uh, Folke Bernadotte arrives at the port. He's kind of a, a Schindler character or a Wallenberg character, and he comes and he bribes the guards and saves uh, something like 1,650 prisoners. Hey, Dr. Watson, I only have about a minute left. Okay. So what happens is at the very last moment, uh, as the Nazis are ready to scuttle the ship, the British take over the coast, and, 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 and the Nazis are forced to surrender. So everyone is saved at the port and on the ship. But in a sna bureaucratic snafu that is unthinkable, six squadrons of British bombers fly in, and they blow the ship out of the water. Uh, in what is probably the single bloodiest hour of the entire Holocaust and maybe history's worst maritime tragedy. Mm. Uh, one of the thank you, Dr. Watson, for being with us and mentioned just a, a fascinating book, The Nazi Titanic. Robert Watson will be the featured speaker at Hutsuk Amuna Congregation in Harrisburg on October 8th at 4 p.m. Thank you very much for being with us today. It's my pleasure. I really appreciate the time, and your listeners can contact the Jewish Community Center in Harrisburg, as well as the synagogue, for information. Thank you so much. Right. Also, just to be accurate here, I had a couple of listeners point out Casablanca was made after Pearl Harbor, and the night to remember was made in the late 1950s. So I got some bad information there, but uh, we strive to be accurate, so thank you very much. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to be talking about health insurance with Pennsylvania's Secretary of Human Services, Teresa Miller. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, bringing quality care to your community through Harrisburg, Community General Osteopathic, and West Shore Hospitals. More information on our locations is available at pinnaclehealth.org.